Section 4 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453, by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, Italy, 1273-1313, Part 2. With Boniface VIII, 1294-1303, the papacy made one last effort at universal supremacy. The new pope owed his election largely to the influence of Charles of Naples. He is said to have gone to the monarch with these words, King, thy pope Celestine had the will and the means to serve thee in thy Sicilian war, but he had not the knowledge. Now, if thou wilt work with thy cardinals that I may be elected pope, I shall know and I shall will and I shall be able. Here, then, before proceeding further, it will be well to see what these affairs were in Sicily which required the papal interference. Charles, King of Naples and Sicily, was, as we have already seen, the most powerful of all temporal princes in the Italian peninsula. But the close of his life was involved in misfortunes and humiliations by no means undeserved. French rule was hated with a fierce and bitter hatred in this southern kingdom, and especially in Sicily, where Charles, moreover, had a determined opponent in John of Procida, sometime physician to King Manfred of the Schwabian line. Whether stirred by personal or purely patriotic motives, John was privately working for the downfall of the Angevin dynasty, and intriguing for this purpose with Pedro, King of Aragon, who himself had a claim to the throne from his marriage with Manfred's daughter, Constance of Sicily. The train was laid, therefore, although the fire was kindled by a chance spark, which suddenly precipitated the explosion. On Easter Tuesday, the 31st of March, 1282, the people of Palermo, having just celebrated the evening service, were preparing to spend the rest of the day in amusements of all sorts, when a body of French soldiery arrived nominally to keep the peace. This in itself excited some discontent, but it was a wanton insult offered by a Frenchman to a young Sicilian girl who was passing on the arm of her betrothed, which roused the popular fury. The cry of death to the French was raised everywhere. All the long smoldering anger of the people burst forth with unrestrained violence, the French were massacred on all sides, none, neither priests, nor women, nor little children, were spared. Two thousand French were said to have perished in the Sicilian Vespers, and these were flung for burial into an empty pit. From Palermo the excitement spread to the whole island, all Sicily was in arms, and in a month no Frenchmen were left in their lost territory. The struggle begun by the people was continued by the king of Aragon. Charles vowed recovery and vengeance. If he could live a thousand years, he would go on raising the cities, burning the lands, torturing the rebellious slaves. He would leave Sicily, a blasted, barren, uninhabited rock, as a warning to the present age, an example to the future. Fortunately, he was never able to fulfill his threat. Pedro claimed the kingdom, and his fleet, under the celebrated admiral Roger of Loria, defeated the French ships and captured Charles, Prince of Salerno, son of the King of Naples himself, 
in the Battle of Messina, 1284. In 1285, a number of deaths changed the chief actors in the struggle without ending the war. In one year, 1285, Charles himself died at Foggia. Philip of France, who had taken up arms on behalf of his brother Charles of Valois, to whom the Pope had offered the crown of Aragon, fell ill in Spain and ended his days at Perpignan. Pedro, wounded in the same war, perished a few weeks later. Martin IV, the Pope who had been so completely the creature of Charles of Anjou, likewise quitted the scene. Pedro's son, Alfonso, succeeded him without any difficulty in the Spanish kingdom, whilst his younger brother James was proclaimed King of Sicily. An attempt was made to end the dispute by the arbitration of Edward I of England, and in 1288 a treaty arranged that Charles II of Anjou should be released and assume the crown of Naples, but that Sicily should be confirmed to James of Aragon. Negotiations, however, were vain. Charles, when released, claimed both the Sicilies and war continued as before, and was still continuing when Boniface VIII became Pope. Even the accession of James to the throne of Aragon and his consent to relinquish the Sicilian kingdom did not decide the matter, for the Sicilian people resolutely refused to submit to the House of Anjou. They placed themselves under another brother of Pedro of Aragon, known as Frederick, who, in 1302, ended the long quarrel by a marriage with the sister of Charles of Naples. Despite promises of reversion, the restoration, that is, of Sicily on his death, the two kingdoms remained separate under different rulers until 1442, when both came into the hands of the king of Aragon, Alfonso V. From this it will be seen that Boniface, despite his promises, was not of great assistance to Charles of Naples, and it was in connection with this struggle that he summoned to Italy another foreign prince, whose interference was not limited to Sicily, and who roused universal indignation throughout the country in which the Pope was included. This was Charles of Valois, the second son of Philip III of France, who had already figured as the papal nominee for the throne of Aragon. He remained, after concluding the ignominious treaty with Sicily, to turn his arms against Florence and to trample on her liberties. Boniface made many enemies. He did all he could in Rome to degrade the proud family of Colonna, dangerous foes as he was about to find to his cost. He took little trouble to restrain his violent temper and quick tongue. Whilst performing the Ash Wednesday ceremony of scattering ashes on the heads of penitents to remind them of their end, he flung them into the eyes of a personal rival, exclaiming, Ghibelline, remember that you are but dust, and with the other Ghibellines, your fellows, you will return to dust. It was not only in Italy that the Pope brought himself into trouble. He claimed a European supremacy, which led him to interfere in all that was going forward. When Albert of Austria became emperor, in the place of Adolf of Nassau, Boniface refused to recognize him and put the crown on his own head as a sign of his control over the imperial election. It is I who am Caesar, I who am emperor, 
I who will defend the rights of the empire, he is reported to have cried. Both England and France were to be brought under his control. The clergy of all countries were only to be taxed by him, said Boniface, and by his bill, Clericis Laicos, publicly asserted the same in France and England, where Philip IV and Edward I, respectively, were trying to make the spiritual estate share in national burdens. But in England and France the Pope met his match. The English clergy, after a long dispute, submitted to the king, and when Boniface summoned Edward to answer for his conduct in Scotland before the papal court, laymen and churchmen alike supported him in his refusal. With Philip IV, the quarrel was still more heated and still more important. The discontented Colonna joined hands with the French king, and a combined attack at Anagni upon the Pope who was imprisoned in his own palace gave a shock to the old man from which he never recovered. His subsequent restoration to Rome was followed almost immediately by his death. Villani, the Italian historian, says of Boniface, he was very wise both in learning and in natural wit, and a man very cautious and experienced and of great knowledge and memory. Very haughty he was and proud and cruel towards his enemies and adversaries, and was of great heart and much feared by all people. Whatever might be the Pope's character, universal horror was excited by the treatment which he received, and it was prophesied that great troubles would come upon Philip and his lineage in consequence. Villani says again, The judgment of God is not to be marveled at, for albeit Pope Boniface was more worldly than was fitting to his dignity and had done many things displeasing to God, God caused him to be punished, after the fashion that we have said, and afterwards he punished the offender against him, not so much for the injury against the person of Pope Boniface as for the sin committed against the divine majesty whose countenance he represented on earth. For the time being, however, Philip seems to have had everything his own way. Benedict XI, 1303-1305, the next pope, was reconciled with him, and Clement V, 1305-1314, the Archbishop of Bordeaux who succeeded was completely won over. With Boniface VIII, says Bishop Creighton, fell the medieval papacy. Under an outward appearance of strength, decline had been steadily progressing. As Italian lords, the popes were losing some of their old prestige, and their power in Rome was constantly undermined by family jealousies. Either the Pope was supported by the Orsini, the Colonna, or the Savelli, or he was weakened by their hostility. That the papacy was not strong enough to manage even the affairs of Italy had been shown by the unwise policy of introducing foreign aid. The summons of Charles of Anjou was the first mistake, and he soon became a rival rather than a tool. The character of many of the popes was not calculated to exalt the respect felt for the Holy See, and when Celestine V virtually denied his own infallibility, it was impossible that others should preserve their belief totally unshaken. Finally, the worldliness and violence of Boniface degraded the holy office still further, 
and his vexatious interference in other countries raised European hostility and national resistance. With Clement V began that residence of the popes at Avignon, known as the Babylonish Captivity, 1305 to 1370, which diminished irrevocably their influence over church and state alike. Rightly or wrongly, they were considered for the time as mere vassals of France and treated accordingly. Later struggles and later difficulties were to hasten still further their downward career. Meanwhile, to turn to town history, the chief interest of the period centers round Florence, where the poet Dante was now living and working, and taking that part in political events which was to end in his banishment from home, and the casting in of his lot with that of the Ghibelline party. Tuscany, throughout the latter half of the 13th century, was still engaged in active rivalry between the two great parties of Guelph and Ghibelline, success leaning to the side of the former, owing partly to the strong position won for them by Charles of Anjou, who acted as imperial vicar. Florence, for the most part, was a stronghold of the Guelphs, and here at least the leading characteristic of this party came to be the support of popular government, whilst the Ghibelline represented the aristocracy. Struggle within and without was incessant. Without, the city was occupied by war with Pisa and Arezzo, over the latter she won the victory of Campelduno, where Dante fought. Within, the popular party was busy building up the democratic constitution which has already been described. By the close of the century, Florence had worked her way to a very important position. All Tuscany was for the time at her feet, some towns as friends, others as subjects. At home she was tranquil, rich, and ruled by a popular government, literature and art were making rapid progress. This state of tranquillity was but short-lived. Family feuds broke out with renewed fury in the 14th century, especially between the two great houses of the Cerchi and the Donati. The former were a family of merchants, very rich but not noble. The latter were poor and aristocratic, headed by Corso Donati, who is described as gentle of blood, beautiful in person, polished in manners, of pleasing conversation, a subtle intellect, and a mind ever intent on evil. To these internal troubles, worse were added by the connection of Florence with Pistoia. The latter was a small town about twenty miles distant, which was in so terrible a state of turbulence and disorder, owing to the quarrels between two branches of the same family, which had taken the names of the Blacks and the Whites. That appeal was made to Florence, who accepted the government of the city for three years. This meant the introduction of the struggle between blacks and whites within their own walls. The blacks became identified with the Donati, the whites with the Cherki. In vain the Florentine priors, amongst whom at this time was the poet Dante, banished the leaders of both factions impartially. This only led to a conspiracy without, and the blacks intrigued with Charles of Valois, who willingly accepted the chance of power in Florence, and coming nominally as a peacemaker sent by the Pope, made himself master of the town and readmitted Corso Donati, 1301. 
now followed a period of misery and violence far worse than before charles of valois took advantage of this opportunity for extortion and oppression the whites were banished from florence in great numbers dante was proscribed probably for having resisted a grant of public money to the rapacious frenchman he left never to return charles stayed long enough to make a fortune and win universal hatred he then slunk back to france leaving florence in a turmoil of domestic war and external intrigue which it would take too long to attempt to disentangle a short calm followed the death of corso donati who suffered the penalty of too much success was proscribed by the government and murdered by his enemies and in the same year the city succeeded in winning a repeal of the interdict under which they had been lying for years by sending help to a papal army and so once more becoming friends of the holy see but nothing was sufficient to quiet domestic discord a chronicler of the time laments the evils of such a state and predicts the results that must follow thus our city continues tormented thus obstinate in evil deeds remain our citizens and what is done to-day is blamed to-morrow o oh, wicked citizens ye that have corrupted and vitiated mankind by your evil customs and unhallowed gains ye are those who have introduced every evil habit into the world and now the world will reward you the emperor with all his power will come upon you and plunder you by sea and land many still felt that the only hope for italy was a strong ruler and the theory of the medieval empire was not yet dead dante represents this view in his de monarchia and all through the divina commedia also illustrations can be found of his passion for the ideal of rome as the centre of a universal monarchy never for a moment would dante deny the spiritual supremacy of the pope but neither would he admit papal claims to superiority over a roman emperor for one divine right over eternal life for the other equally divine right over temporal concerns for peace one must rule mankind is most like god when at unity for god is one therefore under a monarchy and again let caesar show toward peter the reverence wherewith a first-born son honours his father that being illumined by the light of his paternal favour he may the more excellently shine forth upon the whole world to the rule of which he has been appointed by him alone who is of all things both spiritual and temporal the king and governor with henry the seventh of luxembourg this imperial ideal seemed to have one more hope of success rudolph of Habsburg and his immediate successors had strengthened their position as german monarchs they had been fully occupied without asserting wider claims italy they had abandoned henry the seventh thirteen ten declared his determination to assert imperial rights in italy put down factions and receive the crown of rome he came at a time of great need and at first his success was surprising the lombard cities opened their gates to him with strict impartiality he restored their exiles whether guelph or ghibelline deputies from nearly every state hastened to swear allegiance at milan he received the iron crown of lombardy 
laurel leaves in their steel polished and shining as a sword and with many large pearls and other stones and the people wept tears of joy at genoa he was received with honour and appointed imperial vicar over the republic the real insecurity of his position was however soon obvious the impressionable people welcomed his coming and rebelled against him as soon as his back was turned the emperor was poor and obliged to levy taxes and this more than all else raised opposition florence was his most determined enemy and florentine intrigues were largely responsible for the insurrections against him and a guelphic league was formed in tuscany with robert king of naples at its head the ghibelline city of pisa received him indeed with great favour and supplied him with men and money for his advance to rome here his coronation fell very flat for prince john of naples held st peter's and the ceremony performed at st john lateran thirteen twelve was robbed of much of its effect the next year was one of war for the newly crowned emperor he made vain attempts against florence devastated the country round and made a league with sicily and genoa against the hostile king of naples whether henry could even for a time have made good his authority remains forever doubtful for worn out by exertions and an illness which he had disregarded in order not to discourage his soldiers he died so suddenly before siena in thirteen thirteen that all believed him to have been poisoned he had taken the sacrament immediately before and the rumour spread that the priest had caused his death by administering poisoned wine such a tale was all too readily believed in those days whatever the truth may be with henry perished the dream of upholding the universal authority of the emperor his was the last real attempt to assert such claims and italy was left without a sovereign henry the seventh was an able prince full of enthusiasm and energy inspired by the highest principles villani says of him that he was never depressed in adversity nor unduly elated by success and that it was astonishing how much he achieved in so short a time and with such scant resources the difficulties of his task must however have proved insurmountable in the long run the dissensions and divisions of italy were too deeply rooted to be healed by even the strongest authority and henry as a foreigner could hardly have expected universal support the days of imperial rule were really over dante was preaching a theory which had long lost any practical significance henry died in a noble but vain attempt to revive an obsolete ideal End of section four